as we uh, come to the scripture, <clears throat> let me ask please that you bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you, God breathed. And we know that it's profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that every man of God, every person who knows you, God, may be equipped, competent for every good work. And so we pray that as we open the scripture that you would teach us, that you would reprove us, that you would correct us, that you would train us in righteousness, and that, God, you would make us competent and equipped for every good work. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 3. I want to read uh, verses 20 and 21, but only take up verse 21. Colossians in chapter 3, please. Hear the word of God. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We took up verse 20 last week. This week, if God will help me, I would like to take up verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I must tell you that I take up this sentence in Scripture with a great deal of trepidation. I do that because I am a father. And while being a father has been a great joy to me, it has also been a great responsibility and weight. And so as I speak about being a father, it isn't lightly. Uh, I trust nothing I ever speak on is lightly, but I'll tell you this grips me deeply, for I don't want to give the impression that I'm any better at this than anybody else. Um, I always preach more than I do and I suspect that's more true here than, um, than in any other case other than perhaps when I was preaching about being a husband. They also take this up with trepidation because I know that when I talk about, when we talk about together family kinds of things, that on the one hand it can bring up some wonderful, pleasant memories, but on the other hand it can bring up very troubling and painful ones as well. It could be as you reflect uh, upon your own father. You, you might think of some very pleasant things, some wonderful things, as I'm sure my children do. But, <laughs> but there might be some troubling and painful thoughts as well. I know that, I understand that. It may be as a wife... Uh, you're married to the father of your children or perhaps divorced from or estranged from in some way and so as you hear about fathers it may be that you have very pleasant thoughts and you're pleased and so grateful to God for this one who is the father of your children and maybe that you're not maybe that that's been a difficult time a painful time and I know that and, and so as we talk about these things I trust that for some at least those kinds of thoughts will come to mind Uh, Even as some men perhaps have always wanted to be a father and yet that opportunity has not presented itself. It isn't there. And so you you hear someone talk about fathers and it just just brings back to you that that sort of thought of regret, if you will. You would have loved to have been a father, but but, but 
simply weren't. I understand that. So we talk about fathers there. And I also understand that as a father, as I talk about fathers, there may be some things in your own life that you're sorry about. And uh, it brings up pleasant memories, certainly, as you think about being a father to your children. But it also may bring up some pain. I get that. I understand that. So I can't touch all that today. But I just want you to know that, that, that that's not far from my mind. I would like just to say this, though as a father to fathers that if you look at your life and you have unresolved guilt about your being a father about things that you've thought or done as a dad I would encourage you to resolve that by that I mean when we speak of guilt we talk about sin really we talk about that which incurs the very incurs guilt from God and the fact of the matter is we're all sinners dads, moms, kids people without kids everybody, we're all sinners and so we all incur guilt because of, of the sin that we, um, that we uh, live in to resolve it means that we confess it before God to resolve it means that on the basis of our trust in Jesus that we receive forgiveness. To resolve it means that I repent of that sin. I agree with God that it's wrong. I change my mind towards it. I pray that he would give me help in order to correct it, in order to live in such a way that's, that's pleasing to him, that's worthy of him. And so, so I encourage you to resolve that. If there's unresolved guilt in this area of your life as a dad, as a father, to, to, to resolve it, to, to deal with it in that biblical way, in that way that God gives us to deal with our guilt, to receive his forgiveness. It may well be part of the resolution of that that that, that you may have to go to your children or go to your wife or or someone that you've really hurt in the midst of this that you haven't yet resolved. If you've done it, you've done it. But if you haven't and you know it's there and it's clear that it's there, I would urge you, encourage you to resolve that guilt. And then this. There's also something else, and this lingers in all of our lives, in, in various areas, but especially, I think, in parenting. And it's something called regret. Different than guilt. Guilt is sin. You must receive forgiveness. Re- regret can flow from sin, even sin that's been forgiven. Because regret is that sorrow that we have. Now, now there's some regret that's just kind of silly, like I regret I never played for the Celtics. Uh, and there are times when that, that really bothers me more than other times. You know, when I watch them play, I go... It could have been me. Uh, or something silly as, you know, I regret I didn't get to take my kids to Disney World or, or provide them with some sort of material thing that maybe other kids had. And, you know, just deal with that. We, I mean, that's, that's not, you shouldn't regret that. That's just life, right? But when we think about real things in the context of our lives, real Sin that led to guilt now forgiven. Still there's this sense of, I wish I hadn't done that. And I'll tell you, that never really goes away. Oh, it's muted at some times. And 
more painful at other times, but it's sort of there. I think of Paul, I think of Paul the Apostle, who was a terrorist, really. I mean, we, we, we really can't think of him in, in, in too dark terms before he came to Christ. And so he was a man who had Christians imprisoned. He was a man who killed Christians. And these were husbands of wives, wives of husbands. These were moms and dads of real people. And, and I often think about the fact that as he would travel, as Paul would travel, my suspicion is he'd run into people who knew him from when he was Saul of Tarsus, knew him when he was this terrorist. And, 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 and I think when he would see relatives of those he imprisoned, relatives of those he terrorized, relatives of those he may have killed, uh, that he didn't feel good about that. Now, there wasn't a man in all of history, I don't think, who knew better the forgiveness of God than Paul. He knew it. He embraced it. He was a forgiven man, and he understood that. You, you read in his letters, and you know that he was a man who was close to God. He was a man who lived knowing that he was pardoned from his sins. But still, you get a sense when he writes, about his former life that he didn't write it with glee he wrote it with a sense of sorrow and that's really true in our lives now we mustn't let that kind of sorrow debilitate us rather allow it to humble you when it comes just allow it to wash over you and says yes I realize that I am a sinner in the sight of God forgiven and yes I realize that these things were true of me and I know that. And rather than let them debilitate you, rather than let them stop you, allow them to humble you before God and before others and to live out your life. I hope that makes sense to you and doesn't trouble your conscience, but actually helps you. Now, having said all that, let me just sort of press on if you'll allow me. Because being a father, being a parent, is a weighty matter if you think about it. I mean, you think about the fact that God has given you stewardship over this soul, over this human being that comes. And he says, I want you in my stead, I want you to care for this one from childhood to adulthood and then some. I want you to be a part and influence in this one's life, framing this person's life, helping this one mature, grow, to protect and provide for this one. Now it's interesting that at this point, the apostle addresses fathers. Uh, verse 20 was, children obey your parents. Uh, here he speaks directly to fathers. Same is true in Ephesians in chapter 6. Children obey parents, then fathers. And the question why? Well, first, very honestly, the little word for father in verse 20 of Colossians 3 can also be translated as parents. But it's never translated as parents in any of the, the Bible versions. And the reason is because, really two reasons. One is because Paul uses a very common word for parent in verse 20. Since he changes it in verse 21, you get the sense he doesn't mean the same thing. And so since it can be translated as parent or father, everyone opts for father. The second point is that, is that it flows, this idea of father being in verse 21, um, it flows better because of the context. Because we're in a context where Paul is speaking to one who is to be submissive and to another who has responsibility as head or authority. So wives to husbands, slaves to masters, children to parents, but now fathers. Why fathers? Because there's a sense of headship. There's a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of authority here in the context of the family relationship. And so as we saw that husbands 
were head of their wives as Christ was head of the church, and the wives were to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ. We see that relationship of submission to headship. We see it here as well. Not only kids to parents, but now there's something of authority in the context of the father in the home that's significant that dads must grab onto, that moms must encourage. And the the word that Paul has here is that fathers don't provoke your children. Now, in the Ephesians passage, it's another expression to provoke your children to anger. But this is a more general word. Don't provoke your children. Now, the word provoke can simply mean to stir up. So you can stir up your kids in good ways, and you can stir up your kids in bad ways. And so you get the impression from this sentence that this is stirring your kids up in bad ways. Because the end result is that they become discouraged. Now, Paul doesn't speak to fathers in this regard because mothers are allowed to provoke their children. Uh, it isn't like, all right, <laughs> dads, you can't, but mom, you can do it all day long. That'd be fine. So, uh, that's not the point. The point is the goal for the father in watching and overseeing the life of his family is, is to make certain that the children don't become discouraged. Now, when we think of the word discouraged, it literally means a lack of courage, to discourage is to have a lack of courage. That is, that is so you, you're unable really to face life. You don't have a, the courage to face life. Someone who is courageous has a sense of hope, a sense of confidence. And yes, we can move ahead. We can get this done, if you will. I have a sense of courage, a sense of hope, a, a sense of confidence to be able to live out life. So we could say... If we were going to spin this in kind of a positive way, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Rather, encourage them. Rather, discipline and instruct them in such a way. Rather, make certain that they're being disciplined and instructed in such a way that they have the courage, the hope, the confidence to face life. Now, when I put it that way, to be honest with you, I haven't said anything particularly Christian. I think if you went to Borders or uh, you know, the bookstore and you looked under the child-rearing section uh, and you picked up the books, there wouldn't be any book that started out, Chapter 1, Discourage Your Children. You know, I don't think you'd find that. And, but what's Christian, if you will, about this, what's biblical about this, what's godly about this, what's Holy Spirit-infused about this, what's God-breathed about this, is that we know that Paul, when he talks about our children not being discouraged, but rather having the courage to live life, he's speaking about something in the context of God. And I think we understand that if we could uh, use for a moment Psalm 78. If you turn, if you've got a Bible or one of those little electronic little things, Psalm 78. The context here is passing along the faith to the next generation. But I think it's helpful for us to see how it is that fathers could uh, discipline and instruct in such a way that they do not discourage their children. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm not going to give you a self-help way to be a father. There's all kinds of really good books about all the techniques and the seven things you should do and the 14 things you shouldn't do and the five things that will happen if you do this and four things that will happen if you do this. And I'm not going to tell you to talk nicely to your kids and blah, 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 blah. You know, all that stuff. I want to get at the heart of something. All right? So if you're expecting to be able to have this wonderful thing at the end, all four things to do when I leave, 
you'll be disappointed, but if you know me, you wouldn't have come this morning anyway, if that's what you're looking for. So, Psalm 78, let me read the first eight verses. Psalmist writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now there, when he's speaking of fathers, don't confuse my topic of fathers, biological fathers, the particular children he's talking about, the the fathers of Israel, if you will. Uh, Verse 4. We will not hide them, that is, these things which we know from our fathers, from the oracles of God, we will not hide them from their, chil- from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that, and here's my point, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, again, not biological fathers, but the fathers of Israel. They should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see, the goal of teaching our children, instructing children, disciplining children, is verse 7, so that... They should set their hope in God. Now, dads, if we live in such a way and we discipline our children in such a way and we instruct our children in such a way and we lead our children in such a way that they hope in God, then they will not become discouraged. If we lead them in such a way that causes them to hope in us, we'll fail them. If we lead them in such a way to hope in money or wealth, they will become discouraged and disappointed because money and wealth can come and go. So when they have it, they're encouraged. When they don't have it, they're discouraged. If we teach them to um, have hope in their physical health, they will eventually become discouraged because that will leave them. If we tell them to become encouraged in their ability to play sports, then they will eventually become discouraged because there will always be someone better than they are. They'll lose out on a team. It simply won't maintain their courage in order for them to live life, to really live life. But if we teach them, if we show them what it means to really hope in God, then they've got something that will never, ever disappoint them. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans in chapter 5, This, Romans 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained by faith into this grace, I'm I'm sorry, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, a person who hopes in God, a dad who hopes in God, is hoping in the glory of God. And a day will come when the glory of God will be seen and will be in it. He says, oh, I know that's coming. And so I always have hope. I needn't ever to be discouraged, really, because I know the glory of God is going to come. 
You know, Psalm 46 is a great psalm. It has, an, has a sentence in it that we all like to quote. And the sentence is, Be still and know that I am God. We love that expression. Because if you know that psalm, it begins by speaking of God being our very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains tumble into the heart of the sea, it says. All things that are great calamities. It says we won't fear. Why won't we fear? Well, because God is with us. And so God says, relax, be still, and know that I'm God. But what makes that sentence, be still and know that I'm God, really work is the next expression. The expression that follows after, be still and know that I am God, is, for I will be exalted among the nations. See, the reason that we can relax, the reason that we can be still, even in the midst of calamity, even when our life is falling apart, the reason we can still have hope is that God has promised that he'll be exalted among the nations. And that's our real hope. Because when God is exalted among the nations, then he, that means I'm going to show up and you'll see me. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, it may not be till who knows when. But he says, trust me and you'll, I'll be exalted. The man who hopes in God passes along to something to his children if God will help. That is real hope in one who will exalt himself. And when he does, all will be well. The person who hopes in God knows that. The apostle goes on. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that is just an odd statement. To walk around and say, we rejoice in our sufferings. If you go to a psychiatrist and you say, I'm rejoicing in my, 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 my sufferings, they'll admit you. Right? I mean, it's just, I mean, you're not supposed to do that. So what in the world does he mean? If he's not a masochist, what, what, what does this really mean? He says, because I know something. I know something about suffering. And I know something about God. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So I know that this suffering has a purpose. It isn't just arbitrary, because God is sovereign. God is sovereign over my whole life, and I'm hoping in Him. He'll exalt Himself. And, and where I'm likely first to see God exalt Himself is in my own character. And when he does exalt himself in my own character, conforming me more closely to the image of Jesus by way of my suffering, that gives me hope. Why? Because I say, yes, it's really true. God really is at work in me. And so it gives us hope. And it says, Paul does, that hope does not put us to shame. In other words, if you hope in God, if your children hope in God, dads, they'll never be put to shame. He will deliver, ultimately. If it's not until that day when we're standing with him in glory and everyone sees, oh yes, I should have hoped in God. It will not put us to shame. If our kids put their hope in sports, they'll be shamed eventually. If our kids put their hope in popularity, they will be shamed eventually. If our kids put their hope in in position, they will be shamed eventually. If our kids put their hope in physical prowess, they will be shamed eventually. If our kids put their hope in their popularity, they will be shamed eventually. If our kids put their hope 
and their good looks, they will be shamed eventually. Right? I used to tell everybody that before you stay at a new class, don't get married for looks because at 50, everybody looks like this. <laughs> you know. You will be shamed eventually, right? If you put it in money, you will be shamed eventually. If you put it in your intellectual abilities, you will be shamed of, uh, uh, ultimately. I'll never forget, I was sitting one day when I was working on a PhD in economics years ago. I was sitting at lunch <clears throat> with, a, with a man who I admired uh, tremendously. And uh, he was my major professor, brilliant man. And uh, he had invited me to go to lunch, which I knew was scary because he didn't usually do that. And uh, we sat there and uh, he looked at me with tears in his eyes, literally. And he said, Bill, never forget, there's always someone out there smarter than you. Now, I thought he meant me, and I was sure. <laughs> like you, you know? But he said, someone, he had written an article, and someone had bashed it. And when he read the, the critique of his article, he said, they're right. And it destroyed him, because his hope wasn't in Christ. His hope was in his intellectual prowess, and he was put to shame. And he had nothing really to fall back on other than some humble pie. And he was going to try to, we were trying to figure out how he could write a rejoinder that would uh, take care of that. But, it, but if we put our hope in God, even in the midst of suffering, God is at work. Because you see, God is sovereign over all things. And we, we quote this Romans 8.28 all the time. That God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But you know what? That's really true. It isn't just a trite saying that we say during tough times. It's, it's something that we live on. And we put our hope there. And our children, dads, need to see us live there. Our kids need to see us when times are difficult and it's painful for us to be able to say, I still have courage to live. And the reason I still have courage to live is because I have hope. And the reason I have hope is that my hope isn't in me. It's in God. And he'll never put me to shame. And he's at work even now that I don't see it. And I don't even know how this is going to work out. He's at work even now. Working everything in all of the universe. That it will shake out. And good will come to me. Because I belong to him. He will be exalted. And that is my hope. See if our kids know that. Then they'll have courage to live. If some way we live that that in any way perverts hope in God, then our kids will be discouraged no matter how nice we are to them. No matter what anything else is. The only way to keep them from being discouraged, that they may have courage, that they may have hope, is to have hope in God. You see, we speak often about, about believing in ourselves. Every sports team says, we believe, we believe, we believe in ourselves. I don't want to discourage you, but that was the motto for the Royals this year. It only works if there's something of substance, <laughs> like relief pitching. But anyway, we say that we believe in ourselves, but, but that really isn't true. We're not teaching our kids to believe in themselves. Now, we know what that means when people say they believe in themselves, rather right? self-confidence. We understand what they mean. It means that they have something within them that enables them to take the next step, to have courage to take the next step. But, but, but what we really want our kids to do is not believe in themselves, but believe in God, that He's at work in them. To not have self-confidence, but have confidence that God is at work in them. 
And so they have confidence in God to the point that they themselves then can take that next step because God is with them, you see. Self-sufficiency is the kiss of death to hope. It's the kiss of death to courage. I read last Sunday, I think, during our offering time, a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8. I read it often for that time of offering because it's so helpful to us, I think, especially as Americans, because to show us that our American problem of self-sufficiency isn't new, it's just sin, just another iteration of it. Moses speaks to the Israelites as they enter into the land of, of plenty, as it's called, in the land of Canaan, and with this caveat, with this warning, he says, be careful when you enter into the land, uh, because it's a land of plenty, it will give back, it will give you tremendous things. The problem with that is after a while, you'll think all of that came from you. You'll think it was your wisdom, you'll think it was your strength, you'll believe in yourself, you'll have self-confidence, and then you'll die and be destroyed. You see, it isn't self-confidence, it's confidence in God, that he's at work in us. So the psalmist in Psalm 78 tells us that if we're going to pass anything on to our kids, what we're passing on to our kids as a church, uh, as dads, what we're passing on to our kids is, is hope in God. And so you'll notice in verse 4, he says, But tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders of what he's done. Go back in history. Go back in redemptive history. History. Tell them about this God we worship. Tell them why we have hope. Tell them what he did in the life of Abraham. Tell them what he did in the life of Joseph. Tell them what he, he did in the life of Moses. Tell them what he did in the life of David. Tell them what he did through the prophets. Tell them what he did by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. This is the God we worship. He, this is who he is. He's the creator and he's, he's sovereign over all events and all things. Teach our kids that. Not only by the things that we say, but most especially by how we live. And he says he's established, verse 5, he's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Meaning what? Meaning it's all written down. In those days it was the testimony of Jacob. It was the Pentateuch. It was what we had, what they had written down by that point in time in history. Now we have the whole scripture. He says, dads, if you want your kids to hope in God, you need to know this book. This needs to be your book. And you need to be able to speak of it to your children. One of the blessed memories I have of my father is him eating a bowl of cereal every morning and reading his Bible. That's always in my head. And my dad isn't the book person in my family. My mom's the book person. My mom's the lover of literature. She's the one who embedded some of that in me. My dad only reads the newspaper and the Bible. But he reads the Bible. And I knew in all of our life growing up, in all the difficulties, and all the situations that we found, I knew that he hoped in God. And so we must pass on this testimony of Jacob, this testimony that's in the scripture. Teach it to our children that they would, they would learn. And of course, of course, all we can do is share, all we can do is tell, all we can do is live this out. And we pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will make it real in the life of our kids so that our kids will hope in God and not forget the works of God, but rather keep his commandments. Now it's important, you see, that we realize that provoking our children doesn't mean that every time we make them unhappy <laughs> that we've done something wrong. Uh, they're going to be unhappy. Uh, 
mostly 13 to 18, uh, <laughs> is going to be unhappy. And uh, we, we don't have to work at that. But just because they're unhappy doesn't mean we've provoked something. What, what provokes children to this kind of discouragement is when they ultimately see there is no hope other than the hope that they have in themselves. And if they look at dads and they say, well, dad, dad is the same hope I do, just that I can do better, that'll be discouraging ultimately. What's discouraging too to kids, what provokes them to this kind of discouragement, discouragement is, is harsh standards, not standards, but harsh standards, standards that are unreasonable, standards that change, standards that are unpredictable, standards that are, again, harshly enforced. Or even worse than that, arrogantly enforced. That's what becomes discouraging to kids when they don't really think you have their best interest in mind. That discourages them. It isn't just simply discipline. We're commanded to discipline. We're commanded to correct because God corrects. God is the loving, kind disciplinarian in our lives and he has purpose Hebrews 12 speaks of, of the discipline of God to us and, and dads we are, we are to be we are to be like this uh, verse um, Hebrews 12 verse middle of verse 5 my son don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives and so that's a loving thing to do standards and to enforce them. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Can I get an amen from the kids? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, that's really, as a dad, our hope in God. We hope that as we learn of him, we hope that as he understands, as we understand his will for the life of our children, as we then discipline and instruct them. We hope in him that that will produce from him a harvest of peace and a harvest of righteousness. Peace between our kids and God, peace between our kids and us, and righteous living on their part. That's what we hope. One final word to dads. Proverbs in chapter 17 verse 6 Proverbs 17 verse 6 grandchildren are the crown of the aged that's a new application for me but it's the second one that's for fathers and the glory of children is their father's one version has, and the pride of the children is their fathers. The glory of the children is their fathers. Now, we normally say that our children are our pride and joy. Now, there's a certain sense in which that's true, be it a bit hallmarkish, right? But yet, um, 
as usual, God turns things the other way around. And he says, dads, fathers, your children are to glory in you. They're to be proud of you. It starts, we feel the instinct of that when the kids are little and they come home and they say, Dad, I just told my friend Jimmy that you could beat up his dad. <laughs> and you want to say, have you seen Jimmy's dad? Have you seen me? Uh, do we want to rephrase this? Right? Um, so there's a sense in which the kids, they want Dad to be Dad because there's some sense of, 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 of Dad to God. We want to understand God and Dad's the closest thing we have with skin so we really want to understand him. And so there's this word to dads that we're to live in such a way as to garner the respect of our children. Now, again, we don't do that by becoming cool, cool marches on. Plus, if you're a cool dad to other kids, you won't be cool to your own. I mean, that's just, there's just one of those rules in life. So don't think it's by being cool. It's not by being wealthier than every other dad. Oh, your kids might like it if you have a lot of money. They might use that over the course of the years. But that isn't what really causes them to glory in you. What causes a child to glory in their dad is to see him live courageously. See him live life with courage. To be able to take on what life brings. And the only way that a dad can do that, the only way that a person can do that, is by having hope in God. If it's in circumstances, they'll betray you. If it's in yourself, you'll lose. If it's in others, they'll let you down. The only way, dads, to show your kids that they should respect you and glory in you is that if you have hope in God, if you trust Him. This morning we have opportunity, as we do often, to recognize that our hope really is only in in God, as we come to this table, we can't do it other than realizing that we need Christ. In fact, as we think about this passage in Colossians chapter 3, the, the way really that we live out this is to do exactly what Paul has been telling us in Colossians 3. He says that we're to put on Christ. So dads, if, if you want to know how it is that you can really live this out, to, to hope in God in such a way that your, your kids see it and, and, and you don't discourage them, well, well, you put on Christ. And so you take off sexual immorality, as Paul says to do. Because if you don't, then will your kids really respect you if you're unfaithful? Put off anger because that isn't really how to relate to your children. Anger doesn't bring forth the righteousness of God the scripture tells us. And not only that, but we must take off what he calls coarse language. That is, we have to not say those things that nobody should say. When the apostle speaks about putting off coarse language in Colossians chapter 3, as we said, he doesn't mean about talking dirty. He means about saying those things which shouldn't be said, which shouldn't be uttered. Dads need to be careful about how we speak and what we say to our children so as not to discourage them so that their hope would indeed be in God, and then we must put on compassion. Jesus, the compassionate one, he sees our need and comes to help. Compassion. Kindness. Most especially in how we speak and and how we speak to our children and and of our children. Uh, Humility. Uh, The Lord Jesus was God. And being in the form of God, he didn't regard, the scripture says, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Humbling himself, taking the very form of a servant, dad's 
Humility is who we are and who we know ourselves to be in the presence of God. And then we need to live that out. We come to this table. This is who we are in the presence of God. I hope one of the things, kids, that you see of your dads, of your parents on communion Sundays as they come forward to receive from this table, that's their telling you that just like you, they're sinners and they need a Savior. And so, dads, moms, as we come to communion, what we're telling our kids is we're just like they are. In that sense, we too need a Savior. And so our discipline of our kids isn't an uppity discipline of our kids. It isn't an arrogant discipline of our kids. It's a meek discipline of our kids. It's a gentle discipline of our kids. Why? Because we know ourselves to be sinners too. Now just because you're a sinner, Dad, doesn't mean you can't discipline your kids. If your kids come to you and say, Dad, when you were a kid, I know you did this. You shouldn't say, oh, then I guess it's okay for you. You simply say, I know it was wrong when I did it. It really was. And thus, it's wrong for you to do it as well. Repentance goes a long way. To be able simply to admit, yes, I was wrong when I did that. And so, I can't let you do it either. But you've had to repent. You have to admit that that really was wrong. So we come to this table and we're humbled in the presence of God. I need a savior. We're meek because we can be gentle because we trust God with our kids. We trust Him. We're patient, as the Apostle says, we're to be as we put on Christ. We're to bear with our kids all this stuff. And we're to forgive them so they know about reconciliation. We're to love them as God in Christ Jesus has loved us, you say. As we come to this table, there's, there's nothing we can be but God-centered, Christ-centered, I hope that one thing my children remember of our household is that it was God-centered. It was Christ-centered. That when things got difficult, we went to Him because our hope was in Him. When things were good, we went to Him because our hope was in Him. That it was God-centered. I remember that it was the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread after giving thanks he gave it to his disciples he said this is my body which is given for you and in the same way the Lord Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me and the apostle adds for as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup we declare the Lord's death until he comes So what are we declaring today? So many things. We can make a long list. At least this. We're declaring our Heavenly Father is good. We're declaring our Heavenly Father provides for us, cares for us. And He did it primarily as He sent His Son to die for us. And our hope is in Him. And in Him alone. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us that you would cause us to focus our attention, God, upon you, that our hope would be in you and you alone. For fathers most especially, I pray that you would enable us to sow hope in you, God. That our kids would know that, that we would be so prayerful, 
so desirous of our children hoping in you that we would teach them and discipline in that direction. And Father, we give our kids to you. We lift them to you. That you would work in them. There are no formulas, God. We know that. But we lift them to you that you would work in their lives. Father, we pray that you would take this bread and this juice and use it in such a way that would turn our attention, turn our minds, turn our hearts, our very lives to you, Lord Jesus, that we'd fellowship with you around this table. Give us hope. Renew that hope in us. That we would not be discouraged, that our families would not be discouraged, that our children would not be discouraged. But rather that we have the courage, the hope, the confidence in you, God, to live, to really live to obey you. This we pray. In Jesus' name.